Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Goodwin gets a crossing, takes a deflection, and it's on targets! Get out! Mitch Duke gets his head onto it for Australia. Craig Goodwin had a look up, he saw the cross, took a touch, played it in, had a slight deflection, and Mitch Duke, Australia's Duke, nods it home. Yes, uh, the Duke of West Sydney, Mitchell Duke, scoring for the Socceroos um, at, against Tunisia at the FIFA World Cup. Uh, joining us from West Island to talk this and a few other things from an Australian point of view is Pete Fairburn. Morning, Pete. How are you? G'day, Ricardo. Going well, mate. Still uh, revelling in the success of the Socceroos over there in, in Qatar. What a uh, what a wonderful moment and a first win in a World Cup competition for for 12 years for the Socceroos, so so fairly significant. Yeah, very significant, mate. Uh, and now, I mean, uh, after that France game, I thought you guys were toast, but all to play for, you got to you got to get a result against the Danes uh, to get through to the round of 16. I still think you'd be underdogs, but the fact that you're still in it with one game in the group stages to go is, uh, has got to be pleasing for Australian football fans. Well, Ricardo, I think Aussie football fans would have bit your hand off if you offered them the situation we're in heading into this Denmark game. To be brutally honest, you know, you look at the, the squad that we've taken over to Qatar and uh, most people would say it's probably the weakest squad the Socceroos have ever taken to a World Cup on paper. Um, you know, it, it was a pretty arduous qualifying campaign and, and took right into the last minute in a penalty shootout against Peru and, and really headed over there with fairly low expectations. I thought against the French in our opening game, we got found out pretty early and, it, you know, we've the, the, I guess the gap in class was was pretty obvious, and you had you know young Nathaniel Atkinson, for example, playing at right back, being you know absolutely taken for a ride by Kylian Mbappe, as you'd expect he would. A young guy, you know, predominantly A League experience against one of the greatest players in the world, and uh, heading into that Tunisia contest, they'd been pretty staunch against the Danes themselves to draw in the opening match, so expectations were relatively low, but. A fantastic finish from you know a bit of a journeyman really in Mitch Duke, a 32-year-old striker playing in the Japanese second division, who likewise has spent most of his career in the A League. It was a fantastic finish, really, really class. And then a couple of outstanding individual performances. Uh, I thought Harry Sutar at centre back, coming off the back of an ACL injury that's that's really seen him play very little football over the last 15, 16 months with Stoke over there in the English Championship. He was iconic, uh, putting his body on the line and throwing himself around. You'd never guess he's he's a couple of months back from from such a serious injury. He was fantastic. And uh, look, Tunisia didn't take their chances. They had a couple of good chances, but they they weren't able to take advantage. And as you say, we head into a game where we will be the underdogs against Denmark, rightfully so. They've been you know a, a pretty good international team for a number of years. We saw what they did at the Euros just a couple of years ago, but. If we could try and hold on, I think Australia will definitely be looking to, to park the bus fairly early doors. Not what this World Cup needs, another nil-all draw, but um, if we could manage to secure that and, and find our way through to the round of 16, I think we'd reflect on it as a massive overachievement.
Yeah, what's the um, what's it like in Australia at the moment? I mean, normally you guys are busy celebrating uh, AFL or rugby league or or cricket, and everything else takes a back seat. But in, in terms of what's dominating uh, chat around the water cooler and what's dominating the papers and the news at the moment, is is it the Socceroos? Yeah, absolutely, it is. There's real football fever. I think every football fan or any sports fan anywhere in the world has had to wrestle with how they feel about all the horrible things you know, related to this World Cup and where it's being held and the people who are holding it. And people have genuinely had to take stock of that. The Socceroos were one of the teams who made a, a really strong stand pre-tournament and came out with a video talking about all the things that, that they felt strongly about you know, relative to, to Qatar hosting this World Cup. That being said, I, I think people have decided to, um, you know, to, to view the matches on their merit and view them as a sporting contest and... And it's not to ignore the political side of things, but it's just to separate the two, just like the players have done. And, um, the, you know, look, we've been very lucky to have, um, you know, the Rugby League World Cups recently, the T20 World Cup. There's been a lot happening in the Spring Carnival, but all of that's kind of come to a standstill now. And it's absolutely uh, the Socceroos who, who are gaining all the attention at the moment. And, um, yeah, people are really excited to see how they might go. Yeah, all right. We'll keep an eye on uh, how they do go and see if they can progress against the Danes. Um, we should talk uh, to the Wallabies. It's been a real mixed bag, I, I guess is the right way to put that uh, northern tour. I mean, the opening game when you lost by a point to France, I think uh, Dave Rennie probably banked some kudos for that result, even though it was a loss because the French, I think everybody expected them to dominate. Then backed that up by losing to Italy where he was one step forward, two, two steps back. A close loss to Ireland and now a come from behind win against Wales. I mean, you were down, what, 34-13 and won that 37-34 somehow. So, I mean, Dave Rennie, he, it's, it's a roller coaster ride with the Wallabies at the moment. Where does he currently sit? Yeah, look, I think firstly you've got to recognise um, you know, what a, a backs-against-the-wall victory that was. And that's one that will go down in history as a really gutsy Aussie win. Uh, look, the Welsh aren't a great team. We know that. And at the moment, you know, we, we've certainly got a few... Uh, improvements to make to be considered a great team as well. But you've got to take your chances. We haven't really done that on this tour. Uh, we were really fortunate to beat Scotland in our only other win on tour when they uh, Blair Kinghorn missed a, a pretty kickable penalty to win it for them right at the end. As you say, we, we lost to Italy, France, Ireland by um, you know, combined five points against those three matches. And you know it's great to look at it and say you're competing against some of the best teams in the world. Um, you know, to get that close is, is, is something to be proud of. But you've got to be clinical and you've got to win when it, when it really matters, especially heading into a World Cup next year. So what we've been able to do against the Welsh coming from so far back with, um, you know, basically you, you could put together a 23 of, of missing Wallabies players at the moment that would probably be stronger on paper than the one that was selected. Um, and that's across injuries, but also across our, our players who weren't eligible for selection um, due to this being outside the test window. So your, your Marika Corabetti's, Bernard Foley's, Will Skelton's, um, you know, you throw in all your injured players and all of a sudden, you know, there are fairly mitigating circumstances that, that have us sitting in the position we are heading into the World Cup. That being said, um, jury's out on Dave Rennie. I've been a supporter of, of his uh, since long before his appointment and I think he's done some good things. But there's a lot of uncertainty around, um, you know, particularly selection. Um, no more so than in the halves where, um, you know, certainly there's been no opportunity for... You know, someone like a Tate McDermott to get any continuity. You know, someone who, who almost all Aussie rugby fans think is a real point of difference in that nine jersey and a real live wire. And if he's not starting, should certainly be coming off the bench every test. Noah Lolaseo, our, our young 10, 
he's been he wouldn't know whether he's coming or going that guy in terms of um, I guess the the lack of continuity and selection he started all the games against the French mid-year last year, then wasn't taken on the spring tour. Then he started all the games against England this year, barely featured um, during the rugby championship. And um, he, he was left on the bench last week against the Irish. And then Ben Donaldson, a, a one-cap rookie, picked ahead of him to start against Wales. So things like that, you look at the situation and you look at a Noah Lolisio, you look at a Tate McDermott, there's a few other, you know, a Harry Wilson who... Um, you know, wasn't taken on the spring tour as probably the best performing back rower for Australia in Super Rugby, and um, you know the coaches have got to trust what they see in front of them every day in training. I get that, but the flip side of that, I, I think that when the results haven't been fantastic, you do have to call into question some of those selections and, and whether the end has justified the means. And I think at the moment, most Aussie rugby fans, um, you know, would probably favour continuity for Rennie winning the last game of the year probably helps, but there's two big coaches available out there right now on the international scene, um, and that's Scott Robertson and that's Ronan O'Gara, and we know that Wales are likely to be looking for a new coach. We know England will be um, you know, at the end of the World Cup when Eddie Jones finishes. We know that New Zealand could be in the market for a new head coach. So if you had an indication that you could get either an O'Gara or a Robertson in now ahead of the World Cup and, and steal a march on, on those other big rivals... I think you'd have to give it genuine consideration. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting one. We'll keep an eye on that, mate. We'll uh, we'll ask you about Eddie Jones coming up shortly as well. We'll just take a break now for the latest in news and sport with Aroha, and then we'll come back with more from the other side of the ditch. This is SENZ Mornings with Ian Smith. 28 away from 11, brought to you by Brandt, your local John Deere equipment dealer. Uh, Ricardo Ball in for Smithy. Well, he is on Pete's side of the Tasman, uh, part of the Fox crew calling the Windies Test Series. We'll talk a bit of cricket in a moment with Pete. But, Pete, I also wanted to ask you about Eddie Jones and how much news there has been around that, particularly after what has to have been seen as a very disappointing uh, Northern tour. Well, it's not a tour for England because they're there, but in terms of the games they've hosted, uh, they got they didn't even look at the races against the Springboks, and the All Blacks should have put them away as well, uh, but didn't. Um, Eddie Jones, is he, is he going to make the World Cup with England? Well, it's an interesting one with Eddie. He's never far from the headlines, is he? And, uh, you know, we know that he polarises opinion, you know, probably more so than any other figure in international rugby. So really disappointing uh, autumn series for for the English. And and you'd say now really um, in Ireland, France, uh, South Africa and New Zealand, most people think there's four genuine threats for next year's World Cup. And only three or four weeks ago, you would have included England in that mix. I think the, the you know the question for Eddie is going to be um, you know whether he he's able to still extract the best out of the players and I think it will be pretty player driven if there is going to be any change there. Um, you know, in saying that, I, I think you know we talked about O'Gara and Robertson and perhaps even um, Steve Borthwick's considered the English hope for for that job at the end of the next World Cup. Are any of those guys really ready to come in with an England team uh, you know this close to a World Cup and with the amount of pressure? Um, that, that rides on that, and I think, you know, with Robertson and O'Gara, the fact that they they haven't, you know, they haven't coached in the Premiership, they haven't been around that type of environment with with those players, it's a pretty tough ask for them to come in. And in the case of Borswick, he, he's obviously got some international assistant coaching experience, but it'd be a pretty brave decision to to get rid of Eddie Jones um, and, and and bring Steve Borswick in in his place. So I think Eddie will probably get the stay of execution 
true to the World Cup. Um, you know, he, he has, uh, you know, really selected a, a lot of a lot of players over the last two years, similar to Dave Rennie, in that there hasn't been great continuity around his selections. I, I think a, a middling Six Nations will be enough for him to stay in the job. So, let's say you know three wins w- would probably be enough for him to stay there, possibly even two. So, I'd be surprised to see him uh, get the boot before the World Cup. He's pretty steadfast in his belief of of his philosophies and how they're going to translate to success. So I think he, he probably gets to hang around. What about cricket uh, over your side of the ditch, mate? I mean, you got the uh, you just had that England series after the T20 World Cup, which seemed a bit of a weird one, just three ODIs after a T20 World Cup. And now you're into a Test Series against the Windies, followed by a Test Series against South Africa. Seems all a bit up in the air at the moment. How's the... Uh, I mean, you, you Aussies love your cricket, but, I mean, what's the fandom like around the schedules? It seems random. Yeah, look, we do love our cricket, we do love our cricket team, but there is a genuine sense of apathy around cricket at the moment. Um, I, I think that three ODIs were, were viewed through against England were viewed through a, a fairly cynical lens, um, and, and the fans voted with their feet. I think less than 20,000 went to the three games in, in Sydney, Adelaide, and then only just over 10,000 went to the game at the MCG, which was a, an awful look for the game. Um, you know, really, really poor attendance when, when the stadium's one-tenth full. Um, and, and then we're heading into, you know, and, and, and this is the way the fixture works, right? But we head into a, a test series against a Windies team who had really flattered to deceive. Um, you know, they, they, they've really, really struggled um, to, to, to have an impact at test level for a number of years now. So expectations are pretty low there and, and people are, are thinking that um, it's probably going to be a fairly one-sided contest. There's a a lot of apathy around the Big Bash, which has only grown year on year. 61 games in the schedule. Most people would say that's about 21 or even 31 too many, that it drags on, that the the calibre of players that the competition can attract, um, you know, certainly from overseas, is significantly lower because people don't want to commit to a competition that goes for so long. And we've seen this year the international players, you know, the majority of the ones who've come in through the draft system for the BBL will actually leave halfway through the series to then go and play in more lucrative competitions in either South Africa or Dubai. And I think that really shows you know, where the Big Bash is currently sitting in people's estimations. And then finally, to, to top it all off, you've got this you know, allegedly growing divide between the former Australian players and the current Australian players um, you know, off the back of, of the removal of Justin Langer as head coach. Um, you know, earlier this year, which was was driven, you know, by player power and the fact that he had lost the dressing room and, um, you know, seen a number of former players and former teammates of Justin Langer's, you know, speak out in defence of him. And um, it's turned into a bit of a back and forth now that's being played out through the media. Justin Langer, you know, incredibly passionate man, um, but has, has had some pretty forthright things to say in the media in, in recent weeks around how he felt let down. Um, you know, he, he said that the people who spoke publicly about him uh, losing the dressing room were cowards. Um, and, and you've got this situation now where he's joining the host broadcaster uh, for the upcoming test series, which um, now they're having to talk about whether he's going to be allowed to interview players directly or he's going to be removed from, from discussions when, when current players are involved. So it's really nasty. Not the type of headlines Cricket Australia would be wanting heading into the summer. And after a couple of blockbuster summers with, with the likes of England and India in, in years gone by, 
might be a little bit of a down year for Aussie cricket. Yeah, all right, mate. Uh, one of the conversations we're having here at the moment is, um, uh, and Gary Stead was asked about it yesterday, of course, uh, the Black Caps have, uh, are in a series with India. We've had three T20s. Uh, we've just uh, had the second ODI, which was rained out. The, uh, most of it's been rain-affected. There's been talk about playing and you know getting more roofed stadiums for cricket to play in uh, around the world has been a chat. I know that there was a conversation during the T20 World Cup about why Marvel Stadium uh, wasn't used more. Has there been much chat about that post that? And is that something you can see happening going forward? There's been really very little chat about it, which is quite surprising um, when you think about the fact that um, you know, the, the, the integrity of that entire competition was considered to be likely to be compromised. And we thought that the, there was a possibility that the final wouldn't be played at all, yet five kilometres down the road, you've, you've got a stadium with a roof. For mine, you've got to innovate, you've got to move with the times. And, um, you know, I, I think every stadium that's built moving forward will always have a roof. We know that. Um, some of the more, um, you know, famous stadiums, you know, like the MCG, maybe it is time to look at, at adding a roof to the mix. At the moment, it's easy to say we don't want to play under the roof because we've got a commercial agreement with this particular stadium that doesn't have a roof and, and is able to hold the most people. But I, I think that, you know, not only the amount of, of money spent, you know, taking people across to the other side of the world to play cricket, but, you know, just in general, in a, a crowded marketplace, the opportunity to make sure that you can continue to, um, you know, to, to, to attract fans and, and that people want to come and, and watch your matches, you can't run the risk of, of matches being cancelled or rained off as often as they are in cricket. We know in AFL there's a lot of games played under the roof at Marvel Stadium. Um, that's generally closed for pretty much every fixture, and that's not even due to rain. It's due to the angle of the sun coming in, and they just made a call pretty early doors after the construction of that stadium. We're playing AFL with the roof shut, and people thought it was weird. It's a bit eerie sitting in there on an afternoon, but what we see is, is we see a better quality of game. Um, you know, we know we, we don't cancel fixtures in rugby or in football or in any of these other sports because of rain. Really, cricket is, is and, and, and tennis are, are really the main ones. Tennis, we've got, um, you know, the Aussie Open, obviously, I think four or three or four courts now under a roof as well. I think cricket's got to innovate with the times. And I think, um, you know, I, I think a move to, to making sure that, that venues, you know, all new venues have roofs, but even looking at, at older venues and whether they can be renovated, I think is really important. I think... Christchurch will be your newest venue over there in a couple of years. I presume that'll have a roof and, and that might have you know the opportunity um, you know for, for things like that. That's a rectangular venue though, isn't it? Mm, yeah, exactly, yeah. So, uh, so maybe a missed opportunity there for cricket. Mm, yeah, that's that's kind of what it feels like, mate. Hey, listen, before I let you go, I also wanted to um, uh, talk to you quickly about Origin. I see Freddie Fittler has been chatting, and he's basically talked about the whole Tier 1, Tier 2 nations and Origin eligibility. He's basically said, look, if if you um, grow up in either New South Wales or Queensland and go to high school there, that means you've been nurtured by those systems, and it doesn't matter who you play your international footy for, you should be allowed to play Origin. Um I know that he's probably got a horse in this race and this goes in his favour, but it does kind of make sense and it would get rid of all that all that, all that tricky eligibility, eligibility chat, wouldn't it? It makes perfect sense. Uh, I endorse it 110%, not only for the fact that it means that we don't have you know, someone like a Victor Radley who, who's elected to play for England uh, and therefore won't be involved in origin moving forward or a Jason Taumalolo who, who's decided to play you know, initially for New Zealand and, and then switch over to Tonga. I, I think we want 
the very best players available for state of origin. I think the days of state of origin being a you know a, a selection match for for the kangaroos are well and truly long gone. And state of origin, you know, it, it lives on its own. It, it's very unique in sport and, and what it represents. We want the very best players out there. But then I think also importantly. We want, we want to actually see a spread of talent at, at an international rugby league level as much as, as players want to. So we don't want a player electing to play for Australia um, or electing to, to play for you know, a Tier 2 nation instead of another Tier 1 nation just so they remain eligible for origin. We want players playing for whichever country they, they are eligible for and they want to play for. And, and we know there's a lot of players um, in, in the NRL and, and in, in rugby league in general who have multiple uh, cultures as part of, of, of their heritage. And uh, I think it's great that they can have the opportunity to represent more than one of those cultures, um, you know, by, by playing, say, state of origin and representing the state where they've grown up. And the criteria has got to be pretty strict, right? I think we've seen, you know, you have to have played rugby league in or for your state before the age of 13, which I think is a, a pretty good mark. But we'd love to see those players still feel like they could represent a New Zealand, an England, a Samoa, whoever that might be, without compromising their origin selection chances. We also know that players playing test footy for Tier 2 nations are getting far smaller match payments than they are if they play for a Tier 1 nation. And, and maybe this is a way to, um, you know, they can still get those big Tier 1, uh, all those big match payments from State of Origin while still playing international footy elsewhere. I endorse it wholeheartedly. I couldn't be more supportive of it. Yeah, good stuff, Pete. Hey, listen, thanks very much for your time, mate. Go well, and we'll uh, catch up with you again soon, eh? Good on you, mate. Chat soon. Hooroo. Hooroo. Pete Fairburn there with us uh, from across the ditch, now working with the Queensland Reds. Has had jobs with the the Rebels, Melbourne Rebels, before as well, and was actually the uh, Rugby Union Player Association uh, media guy for for some time, so it's pretty close to uh, pro sport over there, and has some uh, interesting insights as well. It is sixteen away from eleven here on SENZ.